Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of the Race Formula E podcast, coming to you following the first visit to the Puebla circuit in Mexico. It was the first of the double headers that will make up the second half of season seven. It was a mixed up affair. The track evolution proved to be a particular disadvantage to the championship leaders in qualifying, although track design did mean it was possible to make up some places if you got your elbows out and drag some of the track signage along with you. But the design of the attack mode loop proved controversial, with a series of incidents between cars rejoining the track having a profound impact on both the result and the championship standings. In typical Formula E fashion, the result was completely unpredictable. Lucas Degrassi ended a long wait for a win in race one, while Edo Matara ended an even longer barren patch in race two. Joining me, Andrew Vandenberg, to make sense of all of this are the race's Formula E correspondent, Sam Smith, and our very special guest, Le Mans 24-hour winner, A1 GP champion, and former Porsche and Dragon Formula E racer, Neil Yarny. Sam, I first got to know Neil when he was uh, winning races in GP2 for racing engineering, but it was during the sublime adventure that was A1 GP that I really got to know him. Uh, he's always been one of the most engaging and open drivers in the paddock, funny and self-effacing. Um, what's been your experience of working with him? Oh, pretty pretty similar to be fair. Um, I think I first saw Neil in A1 GP, as you mentioned, back in 2008 when he was the champion in that lovely, lovely Lola. Um, I feel lucky to having seen him at the top of his game in pretty much every WEC race as well. He did a, such a great job in the fantastic hybrid era. And uh, yeah, just, just a thoroughly good guy who also happens to be a uh, a mega racing driver. But uh, yeah, that's all the schmooze out of the way now. So uh, let's get chatting. Yeah, Neil, it's great to have you with us today. Um, we're going to talk about the goings-on in these races in a bit more detail, including the travails for your ex-team. Um, but in general, what was your impression of the weekend? Well, first of all, hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, the nice words. Now I have to be nice to you guys during that whole podcast, apparently, <laughs> too. Um, but no, it's it's great to, to, uh, to be on here. And my first impression of the race in Puebla was... Uh, Clearly, it's going to be tricky offline, especially offline, because when I did the track walk uh, with the team, there were just so there was so much little, so many little stones and sand kind of thing on the asphalt. Uh, that it was clear the track evolution will be big, but offline it's going to be very slippery, and uh, and that's what it proved to be in the end. So. I think uh, we had a track that gripped up mega on the line and was very hard on the tires. Uh, but offline, uh, it created quite a bit of difficulties. Now, Sam, before we get into the races, let's talk a bit more about the track. I mean, I've been to 106 circuits or whatever, but Puebla isn't one of them. It's a bit of a curious track, but I thought as a permanent facility, it worked for Formula a lot better than, say, Valencia. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it, it offered quite a bit in terms of the challenge for the driver and, and the racing as well. Uh, super tricky from a, a grip level, as as Neil mentioned. And I think, you know, all these mini challenges they had, like the, the Turn 15 banking, which was so different for Formula E, and the, the attack zone joker element, which we're going to come into shortly, was... Yeah, it was it was a bit of a, a novelty aspect as well. But, you know, the crumbling surface on Sunday... Probably was a step too far. It caught a few people out, and I don't think anyone wants to uh, at this level to see that amount of uh, degradation on a surface. So, all in all, I thought it was it was okay in the context of it being a, a late plug-in and play type event at a track that 
let's face it, haven't hosted an international race for 12 years or so. So I thought it did the job. Uh, the Hermanos Rodriguez couldn't because obviously it's a, a vaccination centre for the, the pandemic. But I think everyone's kind of hoping they go back to that facility in Mexico City next season. It, it wasn't without other issues, as I mentioned, the crumbling surface and these kind of mini weepers that you that they uh, that seem to develop. Strangely, it's a it's a volcanic area, so it's actually with the summers they have there, the, the surface does get uh, does get sort of brutalized quite a bit. So, but on the whole, I thought Formula E did a decent job of making it making it look great anyway. But I think underneath the surface, it was uh, yeah, it, it you know it wasn't the plushest of uh, facilities Formula E has been to. Now, um, Neil, when you were out doing the track walk and inspection, you must have looked at that attack mode loop and thought that is going to be some problems coming there when the cars are emerging and at different speeds etc well i thought it was actually quite cool idea to go off track but i think it would have been even cooler to actually have the attack mode loop on the inside and have the normal track go around the outside to have a shorter attack oh, loop interesting um would have been also less issues i think with traffic and could have like inverse the whole idea of it a bit it was actually uh, discussing that with Rene Rust on the track uh, walk, he he brought that up, that idea, and I was like, that's actually a good idea. Uh, I think that could have been interesting because it was, was would be completely different. But even this way, it was for once interesting for sure. How it rejoined the track was always going to be a bit tricky. But uh, yeah, well, I think we have seen other tricky things in Formula E already, so it was not like something uh, catastrophic. No, it's all part of the appeal, isn't it, having uh, yeah. all these vagaries. Now, the double-header nature of these races make structuring these podcasts a bit tricky. Uh, in the past, we've done it race by race, but I'm going to mix it up for this one and do it maybe team by team. So given we're joined by a Porsche driver, um, that's where we'll start. Um, Sam, what a weekend. Uh, Pascal Wehrlein appeared to have scored Porsche's first win on a Saturday, only to lose it with a post-race penalty after a procedural error. Uh, then he wasn't quite as dominant on Sunday, but again, lost the podium finish, this time for a power infraction. I mean, there's quite a lot to unpack here. So can you explain what the penalties were for and why in particular the Saturday one was applied post-race rather than during the race? Yeah, I'll try and be brief, but it won't be easy. <laughs> it's a bit of an epic. Um, so, you know, it's the biggest flashpoint we've seen this season in terms of the rules and regulations. And um, t- taking it chronologically, all teams have to declare their qualifying and race tyres before those respective sessions and, and the race. So for the race tyres, it has to be done before the 10-minute board is shown on the grid. And it's completed via an FIA system where you input the specific tyre serial numbers into a into what is comes under the, the, uh, the, the technical passport for the cars. Porsche thought they had done this, but basically what happened is they, they inputted for qualifying twice rather than for the race. So in the end, it was a finger problem. It's finger trouble. And we saw it actually with Van Dorn, didn't we, at Valencia when he lost the pole position for a for a similar type thing. The big issue appears to have been that no one realised until later in the race when a notification was sent to Porsche via, we presume, the intercom system that's used by the race director to the team. And it flashed up on the race control panel as well. It's unclear precisely what the parameters are for these penalties for certain for certain offences. But, you know, surely 
common sense here has to has to reign, doesn't it? That you know there is no sporting gain at all for this kind of offence. It's not as if we haven't been here before. Daniel Apt lost the 2017 Hong Kong Epre because a barcode serial number had been entered wrongly on his technical passport. He lost that victory. It mattered little that Verline was penalised straight after the chequered flag. It, it it just looks awful from the outside, doesn't it? The ramifications will probably run and run here, and, and Porsche quite rightly have um, have appealed this. Um, there were lengthy meetings on the matter between the FIA, Porsche, and the FIA and Formula E, and I'm told they were lively, to say the least. It, it needs to be addressed because, along with many other issues in the regulations, many holes in the regulations that we've talked about before, the sporting and technical working groups have to get this sorted with the FIA because, like I said, it makes Formula E look a bit amateur. And on Sunday, Verline again. You know, lost his second place. This was a totally different thing, and and due to effectively leaving his fan boost probably too late, fan boost is limited to an extra energy of of a maximum of hundred kilojoules and a minimum power of two hundred forty to two hundred fifty kilowatts when it's taken. The driver can take it whenever they like, but only after the twenty two minute mark of racing. You know, it's approximately halfway. It looks like Pascal tried to use the fan boost in a, in a low state of charge, or SOC as it's known in the business. Now, yeah, letter of the law, he should probably have got a retrospective drive-through for that offence on Sunday, but which was about 40-odd seconds, and that would have thrown him out of the point. So, you know, actually probably kind of got away with it a bit on that one. So there was some leniency that came into effect here, but Again, did it really affect things from a performance point of view? Probably not. So there's a letter of the law thing here. There's this, the, the regulations need looked at, frankly. And, you know, fan boost, I think, is a bit of a joke now with the same people winning it every race. And, you know, you can debate how they do that. I mean, I, you know, I can possibly comment on that, but that's another debate for another day. I wouldn't be all surpri- at all surprised if it was canned next season. Uh, to be honest with you, I hate it. I, I absolutely loathe fan boost. And when, when I worked there, it was so hard for me to try and promote it because, in essence, it's just completely anti sporting. And if you apply the philosophy to it to any other sport, it just doesn't work. You know, if you were to say, oh, the team that gets the most votes in football gets to start the game with one extra man for five minutes, or the golfer that gets the vote gets to tee off 30 yards nearer the hole. It just sounds like a nonsense. And the fact that someone's been penalised for the way they deployed something that was supposed to be given to them as a uh, as a boost, uh, it's ridiculous. And and I know that they love the way it's supposed to show the engagement with the fans or whatever. But if you just look at the numbers, it doesn't really do that. So, yeah, I think uh, to coin an old expression, it probably ought to get in the sea. Um, Neil, did you ever win fan boost? No, <laughs> but I also didn't even try, to be honest, <laughs> because I knew it anyway doesn't make sense <laughs> because there no, was no chance. Neil, Neil doesn't have any robot friends in uh, in distant countries. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm not going into the topic. but uh, uh, We don't want to get you in trouble on that one. Yeah, but, you know, anyway, it, it was clear it's impossible to win and uh, in the end anyway. I think even Andre also didn't care. I think he had it on the first race, but we both like, okay, whatever. Uh, uh, we just drive. 
Uh, talking of Andre, um, now obviously you have uh, you've worked closely with him and you know him well. He's having a bit of a tricky season. Yeah, any reason for why he's uh, having a bit of a struggle? Well, you know, Formula E, uh, I've seen it myself last year. Is uh, there's little things, no, which can have a huge impact in in result. And uh, I think it's just yeah, currently not completely coming together. You know, when the pace is there and. He's qualifying actually up front. He gets disqualified for something or something happens. Um, or then when, when the car was okay, uh, he has other uh, struggles. So, you know, it's a bit of a ping pong, I think. But I'm pretty sure uh, these last six races, he'll, uh, he'll be able to bounce back. I imagine the, the mood in the team is pretty defiant after, after that um, weekend. Do we think that's going to spur them on and make it absolutely more determined to get that race win? Well, I think Puebla was was a big boost for the team. In the end, I mean, disqualification uh, here or not, I think generally it was the best and strongest weekend Porsche has had um, in terms of just being up there all the time Well, uh, with, with Pascal. So I think that for sure showed them uh, there is potential and uh, the next tracks will be a bit more Formula E style again no, with New York with the city track so let's see how, how it works on that kind of track but I think uh, latest Berlin is again more like Puebla so uh, yeah I, I'm pretty sure uh, they have a chance of getting that first win uh, still uh, until the end of the season Sam the disqualification meant that as I mentioned Degrassi claimed his first win as part of an Audi 1-2 Pre-race, you probably wouldn't have said that was likely, but this is a result that has sort of been coming. It's just that the Audi pace has been a bit disguised. Well, that's that's what Alan McNish has been telling us for a while, and um, you know who's to who's to say he wasn't right? And he's it, kind of proved that Audi did have a strong package uh, all along. I think it's been masked slightly by incidents, and particularly in Rome when they looked like they were heading for a victory but had a mechanical failure. Um, it, it is a quick car. It's got good efficiency. Uh, it's the first in-house Audi powertrain, so it was never going to be a, you know, it was never going to be anything other than having a lot of potential. Envision Virgin proved that at Monaco, didn't they? Um, and, and in other races this season, but for a variety of reasons, Audi haven't been able to. They, they picked up the pieces of Verlaine's disqualification, but actually, Degrassi and Rast drove really smart races and, and exploited. Uh, the, the issue in the end, they got into position to to uh, to make make hay when um, there was that disqualification. So the third ever Audi one two. They previous ones were at Berlin and New York City in season four. So yeah, they they, they were delighted with it. The fe- the feeling was that they just needed a a decent qualifying, and they kind of got that on Saturday. Although both Lucas and Rene still have plenty of of work to do in the race. They they kind of worked together in the opening stages, and then crucially got Mortara with with sort of a couple of laps to go um so yeah massive top uh, tonic for Audi which let's remember will be leaving Formula E in a few months time so what, what I find really intriguing though is is how um is how Rast has built up a, a decent title challenge now he's uh, he's fourth in the championship he's done a he's, he's had a few errors which you'd expect from a, a relative Formula E novice so I think he'll be. I think he's actually in real contention for for the title, which would be an amazing achievement, wouldn't it? You know, three time DTM, three three DTM uh, champions in championships in four years, I think, and then 
potentially uh, going for a title in Formula E in his first real season. So he's doing an amazing job. I think he's a dark horse. And, and actually his drive on Sunday from last to 10th kind of indicated how how much he's taken to Formula E and, and what he can achieve. So, uh, yeah, one to watch out for, for sure. Uh, nice work, Sam. It's almost like we've worked on this before. So that segues beautifully into my uh, next question to Neil. Um, what have you made of uh, Rene's performance as a rookie? I mean, the Formula E is a hard championship just to jump into. And like you say, he's joined third in the championship, man. Yeah, he's doing a, a great job, I have to say. But um, I also think, you know, from where he came, how what he raced, I remember him racing in, I think it was Lupo Cup and, you know, VW Lupo Cup and all these cars low grip, a lot of movement and so on. And he did always well. And he was also doing well in the Porsche Super Cup and so on. And these are all, let's say, not classical downforce cars like like Formula E. And I think all this kind of um, experience does help him here quite a bit in terms of driving. Maybe I'm wrong. It's a, it's a guess. Um, and uh, I think Rene is clearly one of the most... Uh, I think diversified, uh, like he can drive any car he's shown, you know, it's just, he's so easy. He can easily adapt to any car. And I think that's his, his big strength. That's a really interesting point. And you could, yeah, almost all the other drivers come from a, a high downforce background. Yeah, fascinating. Um, Sam, so uh, Edo Mortar ended his win the streak that dated back to March, 2019 in race two. Uh, following on from a third place in race one, he's now top of the standings. Uh, I don't think any of us predicted that, but a great showing from Venturi. Yes, it was. Yeah, both races. I actually thought he was a bit too conservative, maybe on Saturday's race, and and could have at least split the Audis. But you know, I'm I'm kind of splitting hairs myself here a bit. But he he was quick all weekend and and deserved his win. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, technically, it was his first victory. Obviously. Uh, sorry, technically it was his second victory, but the first on the road one uh, because Hong Kong he he got the maximum points after Sam Bird's exclusion, of course. But Venturi's just had to get things together properly, get get clean races, and with arguably the best powertrain on the grid, it uh, you know it, it should be. I think operationally and strategically, they've got their act together a bit uh, in recent races, and and they've been and they were at the front in Mexico. It all gelled and. And Eduardo got the job done. He's 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 a great talent. I think I think he's changed. I've noticed a change in him and his in his driving the the last couple of well no this season really. I'd, I'd like to say that he seems a bit calmer, a little bit less hair trigger, and perhaps kind of I don't know. I'd, drivers often regroup, don't they, after after an incident or you know his horrible shunt in Riyadh. I, I did speak to him after that, and he was. Yeah, he, it took him a while to get over that one. I'm just wondering if, sort of mentally, he regrouped and it, a bit more clarity came to, to to what he was doing. I don't know, but uh, something has changed. He seems to be much more refined and, and just more efficient in what he's doing, and he's he's reaping the success as we saw. So Robin Frein's still second in the points despite a double no score, um, but it was his, his envisioned Virgin Racing teammate Nick Cassidy who had a breakthrough result, uh, getting that. Um, second place in race two. Uh, how much of a boost to his confidence do you think that'll be now? Uh, you know, getting onto the podium, uh, bringing a result uh, over the line in, in Formula E always gives you confidence. And uh, Formula E is a lot about confidence uh, because 
the perfect car, the perfect lap, the perfect whatever doesn't exist there. It's all about making the most out of your situation, I would say. So clearly, uh, you know, a good result uh, will will clearly boost the confidence. Mitch Evans is level with Rast in third in the standings, and he picked up a handful of points, but it was a really tough race for Jaguar Racing and Sam Bird, his teammate. Yeah, they had to grind it, grind it out, particularly on on Saturday. The points it was, uh, I mean, largely to do with qualifying and those ludicrous pack fights that they had for 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 one lap. Uh, you know, it's so tedious. We we know why they do it. You know, to try and get over the line uh, last and yeah, jostling position. It, to be honest, I'm I'm sick of talking about it because I think it just makes a makes a mockery of the whole qualifying format, really. And they, I think they've got to change it now. It's just too random, and um, I think everyone's a bit fed up of of the whole system. But um, Evans and Bird qualified poorly, as expected, as did everyone in that group, really. So they were always on the back foot. They still had a decent car, I think. I think it did show some pace, but it it, it wasn't quite podium quick and was never going to be from, from that far back. But I thought Mitch Evans actually did a good damage limitation exercise on Saturday. Uh, and, and both races, actually, he was he was good and, and got some points, which I think will be could prove vital come the end of the season in, in Tempelhof. Uh, Sam Bird got Nilpois for the second time this season in a double header after Valencia disasters. He got nerfed into the barriers by Alex Lynn while rejoining the track after the attack zone, which was, you know, just bad timing and a, probably a tiny misjudgment uh, from from Sam there in a difficult position, and then on Sunday he got whacked by Degrassi and uh, and and that compromised him as well, and he finished in twelfth in the end. So yeah, a real tough one for Sam. He he needs a massive New York actually next month to get back into any real contention, but uh, he's more than capable as we know. Uh, he's done the double there before, hasn't he? In in the first time we went to New York in twenty seventeen, but uh, getting double wins in a in a double header now in this era of Formula E or this season of Formula E is, you know, is is almost impossible. I think uh, very difficult to achieve unless you're you're at the back and you're consistently in uh, groups four or three in qualifying. Uh, obviously, it depends on the track evolution, but you know, I, I'd be amazed if anyone does a complete double as we've seen in the past before. Neil Sam doesn't want to talk about it necessarily, but do you see a way of fixing that? qualifying it, it, it does look a bit ridiculous when you've got five cars all just sort of going around in one tight bunch barely making it over the line in time i think there's two two approaches on that the formula e uh, approach which is do you want to just be another race series with uh you know a classical qualifying format or do you want to have that a bit special qualifying format but i also do think i mean group one drove sometimes two seconds slower than group two that's just because they all go out together. Maybe it's two, three tenths, but if someone would actually go a lot earlier, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be two seconds slower like the whole group was in the end. So it's, you know, they're also tripping over each other a bit. So I think it's uh, it's a bit of a tactical play. I think if I was in group one, yes, I would for sure ask for a different qualifying uh format if i was in group two i would uh say uh, no no it's okay or if i was in group three so i think you know there's different views on that so here's my swiss answer on, on your question <laughs> oh, but they, they all know what the rules are right and i think you're right yeah. you, you, you lose more by getting involved in the nonsense yeah. and it's only 20 seconds the track can't evolve that much in in 20 seconds surely 
Uh, it, for sure, it's a it's a disadvantage, but is it two seconds like we saw in Puebla? No, <laughs> they were two seconds behind, you know, because they like blocked each other and overtook each other. I think there's the question, how much really is it slower? I think maybe four tenths, five tenths, maybe the worst case. But many times last year, we had not such a big difference, especially on the second day was actually, there was no difference nearly. So the question is maybe you should take the so-called risk and just go a bit earlier and see maybe it can't get worse than going at the end and be stuck anyway with the others so that i don't understand especially when they when you have two cars in group one i don't get it why you send both out in the mess send at least one early and one late and at least you have both options and you can see what happens yeah absolutely that's why you're just compromising them both Sam, one, one guy who sort of managed to get out of Group 1, certainly in Race 1, was De Costa. And uh, he, he, from 12th, I think he ended up getting 7th. But then it all went bad for him in uh, Race 2 when he when he crashed out. But it appears that he got caught up in some of that trackside banner stuff. Can you explain a little bit what happened there? And why do they have to have all this vinyl down the side of the track? Surely there's a better solution than that. Yeah. Both valid questions. I think, you know, what happened was that, that I can't remember which incident it was. It may well have been Lotter and Sims went sort of wheel to wheel and uh, Andre, Andre pincered Alexander against the wall and tore, a, you know, a good few metres, probably more actually, probably about 10 metres of this trackside signage off the wall. Uh, this is a vinyl uh, sustainable vinyl, which is used by Formula E for the partner's uh, branding. But when it comes off, it comes off in these great big strips. And obviously, with a pack um, following, it, it gets caught up in the cars. And it actually affected, I think, four drivers, uh, René Rast, Freins, Lotterer, and, and most spectacularly, De Costa uh, were affected with this. And, and actually, Antonio had a race-ending shunt when... Uh, one side of his brakes got cooked and contributed to his accident at turn seven. I mean, you know, this this is this is not a sort of you know amusing matter. It actually is. It could be pretty dangerous. You know, these these things have caused shunts. Uh, it looks awful as well. I, I you know, it's got nothing going for it. And you know, Formula E and I know that Scott Elkins did consider a full course yellow for it, but it it never came. I think Formula E are looking at alternatives. Um, Lucas Degrassi told me that he had a simple solution, which was to actually apply them in smaller strips, but still, that they would still come off and, and get lodged somewhere in the cars. And, you know, I just think, yeah, it's 2021, isn't it? So for heaven's sake, let's let's try and find a better way of doing it. It amazes me that all this advanced technology exists where, you know, a robot dog can go and fetch a... Uh, you know, a virtual bone or whatever, you know, all these amazing things in the world. But we can't have, you know, we can't have um, hologram or whatever you want to call it, you know, for TV purposes at least. You know, we, we're racing with no crowds at the moment. So, you know, the crowds don't need to see uh, the branding, do they? Um, there's no one at the track. So let's look at virtual technology that can apply these these brands onto onto areas of the track. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about it, but I, I'd have thought that, you know, sustainable vinyl, um, there must be an alternative, you know, paint them, paint, paint the walls. So, I mean, yeah, I know Formula E isn't there for long and, you know, it, it would take time, but, you know, hire, hire 20, 20 painters to paint the, to paint the branding on. 
Neil, was that something you'd identified as a potential risk when you'd done the track inspection, or did that come as a bit of a surprise? Um, well, we've seen it many times, no? The banners coming off. Uh, um, it's it's the nature of, of, of Formula E and, it, and the walls they put on, on the track. And you and if you don't go close to the walls, you, you will not be quick. So I think maybe they can identify crucial places and there find a different solution, either hard cardboard, I don't know, whatever, or paint them on. And on other places where it's less crucial, they can still keep the banner. So it's like maybe a, a cost-effective solution to think where we can paint and where can we leave the the banners because uh, clearly uh, if someone gets the banner onto the head or something or around the halo he can't see so there is there is a potential danger no doubt what we need to do is we on the track walk which you mentioned earlier neil is give the drivers a pot of paint and they can do it you know earn earn your corn <laughs> you know like yeah What's wrong well, with no, that? Or, or or the journalists because anyway they just sit in press center and don't move so <laughs> at least they they help and and then in <laughs> a bubble <laughs> exactly. Um, Sam, we saw the pace of the um, Mercedes powertrain in the Venturi, but there were slim pickings for the, for the actual works team, even if they are still sixth and seventh in the standings. Uh, but I imagine Nick De Vries is feeling pretty aggrieved at the way he was punted out of race two. Yeah, it wasn't very subtle of of Lucas Degrassi, was it? Speared into Nick De Vries, kind of offsetting. His, his smooth Saturday when he when he were run the ra- when he won the race uh, by and then went and clobbered everyone in sight on Sunday. But um, you know Mercedes had a, a, a difficult weekend, bit of a shocker, meaning they they've they've actually now just scored eight points in the last four races, which is nice. crazy when you think about it. What the, the amount of points that they scored in the preceding races, and, and they still lead the championship, the team's championship. De Vries was. Quite unlucky, actually, in both races. He he got hit by Robin Freins on the Saturday. Um, but teammate Stoffel van Dorn, he had a great drive, actually, on the Saturday, 21st to 7th. Uh, you know, picked off a lot of drivers, did an excellent job, and stayed in contention in, in the championship as well by doing that. But on the whole, yeah, as you said, slim pickings for Mercedes EQ. Uh, but again largely down to the qualifying system we, we, we just talked about. Now, we saw BMW I um, put on a pretty strong showing in qualifying for race one. No need to slip down the order. Jake Dennis eventually finished fifth, a result he repeated in race two. Can you explain why, informally, some cars can be so quick over one lap but struggle over a race distance? <sighs> yeah, so there's a lot of factors, I think, uh, coming into that Um Clearly in Puebla, tires were a factor, uh, the tire wear. And as soon as you have a bit more tire wear, you have a bit more, min- a bit less minimum speed than the other car, you need to reaccelerate. It costs you more energy already. And, and that's just a, a vicious circle going backwards then. While if you're just a little bit better, you're in the, in the spiral upwards. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so many little things which can, have such a huge impact on on your result as i mentioned before um i think in terms of efficiency most most powertrains of the top teams are yeah they're plus minus uh, the same it's it's just um energy profiles maybe also how the driver uses it or how long can he recuperate into the corner with the paddle um there's obviously various techniques um but 
but then clearly setup has also uh, quite a bit of uh, an, an impact because, uh, as I said, as soon as you have a little bit less minimum speed in the corner, you're going to lo- lose a lot of energy uh, because you just need to catch up. Do you think we've got to the point now where the setup is actually more crucial than the overall efficiency of the package because they've all become so similar in their outright performance? I think uh, setup for sure has quite a bit of an impact. And, uh, well, you know, I, I think uh, at the time, uh, Chris Gorn, I think he's still not with Virgin. Yes, he yeah. is. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, Chris, like, I, I know him from A1GP, and I always thought he was very good on the mechanical side uh, of cars. And, and the Virgin cars are always there, yeah, as a customer team. So my question is, uh, you know, maybe it's set up alone. Who knows? Because for sure they don't have all the the software gimmicks a, a, a factory team can do. So maybe this setup has has a bigger impact than we think sometimes. Yeah, Chris had an amazing record in A one. I think he, he mm. did he win it with three different drivers, all for various Sears run teams. I, I think the last one we were I and James were able to beat them then. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> because he went to New Zealand. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, Sam, after trouble practice, uh, Alexander Sims drove an excellent race one to take fourth, uh, while teammate Alex Lim bagged some solid points with a tenth, and then in race two he got a sixth. So not a bad weekend for Team Alex. Yeah, decent points haul for Mahindra. Sims actually was superb on Saturday because he achieved that seventh place in qualifying, fourth in the race after losing most of the free practice session uh, with an issue and had to, the, the team had to perform a powertrain cluster change. So, yeah, a really strong performance from him. Alex Lynn was there and thereabouts on both days and lived up to his rapid qualifying reputation with the third best time on Sunday, although that was then demoted to six after he, he got pinged for, I think it was a power power spike, sadly, for him. But, yeah, still he finished he finished where he started in six, but was sandwiched by the BMW cars. I think did did the maximum for that car. So yeah, I think um, I, I think there'd be a lot of there, there is a lot of positivity swirling around Mahindra. Uh, I think they are on the cusp of a, a big result. Um, I, I I think I said at the start of the season that that they they will win a race this year, and actually I, I think you know that still holds true. I think they can certainly fight for victory, and they just need a little bit of little bit of luck and um, a sort of blemish free weekend, and, and and they could really challenge for a victory. I think in qualifying, Oliver Olin was the star with a front row start for both races, including pole for race two, but a series of technical issues, including not having team radio, uh, blighted his race. Now we all know that um, pitch the car radio has been a part of motorsport for 20 odd years now, but informally it's particularly important, isn't it? Yeah, I think, but it's more important nearly for the pits that you give them feedback uh, with your, most teams use cryptos nowadays to, to give the energy numbers and everything back to them. Um, I think most teams have sorted themselves enough that if there is no radio, that the driver can finish the race with the energy and so on. Uh, you would have that on the steering wheel. Um, but I think, yeah, it's still helpful in terms of strategy, especially with attack mode, when to use it um, from a strategy point of view uh, to to talk uh, to the pit lane. And clearly it was the championship uh, where I had to 
discuss the most uh, Fortin back uh, with the pits. I mean, in the 919 times, we also had quite a lot of uh, communication with the pits, but it was in a different way. Uh, here it was in, in Formula E, it's a lot more about what to do, when to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sam, we haven't mentioned that Maxi Gunter was seventh in race two and that John eric Byrne had a eighth after a quick spin. I guess the one other driver we ought to mention is Joel Eriksson, who made his debut for Dragon as Nico Muller was in DTM action. A solid race from him? Yeah, I'd say solid is about the right term there. I think, you know, driving for, for Dragon Penske is, is, is not not like driving for any other team. It's it's quite hard to judge, really. So the, the guy rocks up there, he gets in the car and and then gets a 20-place grid drop immediately for another uh, technical disaster. Sad, sad. Is he starting from the circuit, Amanos Rodriguez? Yes, <laughs> sad, sad for him. Yeah, it, you know, yeah, what can you say? You know, it's... Um, it was difficult for him. He actually performed pretty decently, actually. He had some good race pace on Sunday and, and stacked up pretty well with Sergio Sete Camera, who, you know, is no slouch. He's had, I think, a, a decent season in a in a difficult environment there at the team. A quick mention, too, for Jake Dennis, who I thought was excellent all weekend. And he just needs to show he can do it on the more traditional Formula E tracks, I think. And, and I'm sure he will, because I really rate the kid. Um, you know, he was... He was terrific all weekend and um, got a brace of fifth places. Um, possibly should have got a bit more, but uh, didn't quite have the the ultimate pace to get on the podium. But yeah, he'll be on a he'll be on a huge uh, upward swing, I think, and, and and relish in New York in a few weeks' time. Yeah, Neil. So talking of traditional circuits, we mentioned that New York's next is one of formerly crown jewel events um, what sort of characteristics does uh, that circuit favour? And if you had to put your neck on the line, and it's formally so it's completely impossible. But who do you think will be strong there? I think uh, if you look back uh, in into the past seasons, uh, Nissan was strong there, and uh, well, Renault or Nissan um, and Tichita, I think uh, clearly uh, two cars which will be which will be quick there, and yeah, it will be. I think when was the last real street circuit? Now, I mean, Monaco we can't really count as a Street circuit for Formula E standards. Rome, I would say. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's April already. So it's so I think it's the first time we actually go to a real Formula E track again. Um, bumpy, uh, tight, and uh, and and stop and go. So uh, I think the Tichitas will be back, and uh, will be interesting how also they play the Group One qualifying because. I think it was last year. No, the year before 19, we saw that uh, the second day, Group 1 was absolutely at no deficit there because Buemi was in it and that's how he then nearly finished still champion. No, he came like, I think he finished second in the championship because he qualified twice up front. Yeah. So that could be could be interesting, I think. Yeah, it's always a good one, Matt. Um, on, when you looked at the track map, the track looked pretty uninspiring, but when you actually see the cars going around it, it's a, it's a really good layout, isn't it, Sam? It is. Yeah, I enjoy going to New York. Um, the, the track is is pretty challenging. It's a, it's in a peculiar part of town, but obviously it's got the nice, the nice backdrop as well. And, you know, America seems to be opening up pretty, pretty quickly, day by day almost. So, yeah, we're hoping... I'm certainly hoping that there's a that there's a crowd there. I mean, you know, if they, I guess, at the end of the day, if they have 
what was it, 150,000 at Indy, then there's no reason why, you know, 15,000 can't be in, in, uh, in Brooklyn that weekend. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Hopefully it's not as humid as it usually is. I mean, it's mm. oppressive humidity there. But um, nice challenge, and uh, it'll be good to be racing there after two years away. Simon, it wouldn't be one of our Formula E podcasts without your latest calendar update. So uh, what news? Yeah, well, the big news is that Seoul has announced a date for the 2022 calendar, which will see it round out the season in August of next year. Um, hopefully, at the third time of asking, we can actually get to South Korea, which uh, for, for what would be what I'm told is a fantastic experience in and around the stadium, which hosted the 1988 Olympic Games. So, uh yeah, hopefully no one does any Ben Johnson tributes over there, but it'll be it'll be an interesting race, that's for sure. We were anticipating probably or potentially fourteen venues uh, and sixteen races for next year's calendar in and around that number. Uh, we're going to have to wait until the ninth of July. Uh, for that provisional calendar to be announced at the FIA World Motorsport Council. We we believe that Vancouver and Cape Town will be on that calendar, which would be great. Two new, uh, very vibrant cities as, as venues for Formula E races. So, fingers crossed, we'll be back to a fuller, less disrupted calendar next season. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it has to, really, to be honest with you. We, we need a, a return to... Uh, to a, a fullish calendar and um, hopefully we'll know more on the 9th of July. Uh, exciting stuff. Um, you've also got some other breaking news for us. Yeah, there, there, was, there was news that we broke today that Oliver Rowland is moving on for next season. So he won't be driving for Nissan next year. He's off to Mahindra, which has signed him on a, on a long-term deal, what we believe to be a long-term deal. It's an interesting one because Oliver has shown this season he's a top, top performer and he's the first in the driver market to move, really. So he's made his move early. Be a surprise to many, but uh, he did make that one-off cameo appearance for Mahindra when he deputised for Nick Heidfeld at Punta del Este in 2015, remember. So he knows the team to some extent, although it has changed quite a bit since those days. Be really interesting now to see who replaces him at Nissan. Uh, we believe that uh, Sebastian Buemi has a, another year on his deal with the Nissan Edams team. We know or we believe that Daniel uh, Daniel Kvyat was possibly going to test for the team at the Valencia promoters test if it would have happened in April. So potentially he could test this summer with a view to to a deal and, and coming into Formula E. We'll have to wait and see. But essentially they'll they'll have quite a few options I think there and there's plenty more movement to come uh, in the driver market for, for twenty 22. So, yeah, um, you know where to come for the news. Come to the hyphen race.com. Neil, are you throwing your helmet into the ring? <laughs> no, no, no interest. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I'm looking uh, for sure forward to go back to Le Mans. And my aim is clear to be in one of those LMDH cars. Um, that's where my goal is set to. Uh, and uh, it would be great to, yeah, you know start a program from zero again here and that's my aim and uh, let's see if it works out yeah the Le Mans looking like it's going into another one of its really rich periods with all the announcements of the manufacturers that are, that are coming yeah, back there I think it's going to be uh, very cool uh, from 2023 onwards and I think it will still build up until 2025 and especially with customer cars and so on so it could be something very interesting and uh uh, most probably it's going to be one of my last real big projects, but uh, it would be cool uh, to to do that, yeah. 
Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Sam, we might even have to do a sports card podcast or whatever. I don't know oh, there's an idea. Another day in the week to start getting that out there. I'd love to do that. We'd love to do that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> as Neil says, it's uh, it's going to be another great period for endurance racing. And, uh, yeah, can't, can't wait for it. They just need somebody proper to do the press conferences. That's the only thing now. So hopefully that happens in the future. <laughs> right, yeah, get your CV back in. You haven't talked about your book yet either. You, you're letting us <laughs> Yeah, from all good bookshops. Neil, yours is in the post. Um, it's £10 for an autograph. So uh, make sure you do a, a, a banker's a bank transfer for me, OK? Uh, you know, I'm Swiss. We pay cash. Okay. No, no trace. <laughs> Don't leave trace. <laughs> Oh, well, on that self-promotion uh, note, actually, I ought to mention that um, Sam and I are going to do a live uh, podcast where we talk about the history of Formula E uh, with a very special guest, and he can promote his book uh, to all and sundry. Um, it's going to be a special benefit for the members of the Race Members Club. Uh, if you go onto the iPhoneRace.com and look at Join the Race, it'll tell you all the details there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Neil, for joining us. Great luck for the rest of the GT Pro season. And Sam, thank you thank for you. coming here and talking your wares. <laughs> um, remember to keep in touch with all Sam's news on the website. And also check out our other remaining podcasts on Formula One, MotoGP, IndyCar, and soon to return, Bring Back V10s. Thank you very much and goodbye.